Uh, we'll be looking at one of the neatest stories really in Scripture. We're going to see the interaction of three uh, people specifically that are, um, there's a warning here. There's also some wonderful encouragement. Uh, there's also a, a wonderful idea of the people that you and I should seek out in our life. Uh, as the, opposed to those that uh, just have a tendency to find their way in our life as they're speaking into it. So this morning we look at the fool, a foolish moment, and the peacemaker. Now I wanted to remind everyone quickly, the idea that peacemaker is in the title is because of what happens when Jesus talks about the peacemakers. Matthew chapter 5 verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. The peacemaker in 1 Samuel 25, I wanted her labeled like that so that you would make the connection from start to finish that she is a daughter of God. As we read uh, this passage this morning and as we're introduced to a lady named Abigail, I don't want just that name or just her time period or just what she does in this moment to kind of sweep up the idea of what Jesus said in the Beatitudes. And what he said in the Beatitudes is that a peacemaker would be known as a son or daughter of God. And so I want to elevate that up front so that when we read her story in a minute, it doesn't, it doesn't fall flat. It needs to hit a very, very high Note, because as we look at what her life was like, at least in this passage, as we look at what she does in this passage, there is tremendous honor in what's being said here. And I can't help but think that when Jesus whispered the Beatitudes, that somewhere in his mind, Abigail was one of those people he was talking about. Because in this passage, she saves a lot of life. There is a lot of bloodshed brewing. And she saves it by being proactive, by being someone who later Jesus would call a peacemaker. So where have we been the last couple of weeks? Well, we talked about a man of honor. We talked about men of honor, right? We talked about David's mighty men. We made the comment that you and I need to practice the giving of honor. The New Testament says outdo one another in giving honor. Learn to do that. And I, that, that sword is twofold, okay? If you and I will learn that properly... Not only will it make us um, somebody that people like to be around, but it will also make us someone that binds people to us. And that's what we saw in that passage. Especially when we're doling out honor on people that may have been years since anyone has ever whispered a kind word to them. Outdo one another in giving honor. That's what we talked about out of 2 Samuel when we looked at David's mighty men. And the context in that, if you remember, was misfit menaces to mighty men. The island of misfit toys was the cave at Adullam. And later, David mentally pictures it as a place of tremendous blessing. Where he starts off with 400 of those that are broken and bitter in soul. And later on in life, as he finishes his life, he looks backwards and he says, the men of honor, those that have helped me the most. And he, he triggers, he tags the cave of Adullam as one of those places he remembers. I cannot help but think you and I need to pay attention to where uh, our men and women of honor come from. Last week, we talked about the idea of dealing with the difficult, right? I told you last week, it's a life skill that few ever master. David did. 
David did and knowing that he mastered that skill, that he could deal with the difficult, what that showed us was when, when the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart, what we see in these passages is a young man that will hand God what is rightfully his. A young man that gives his future and sovereignty of this world over to the Lord. Instead of taking things into his own hands and righting wrongs, even when he had merit in what he could have done, even when his friends were trying to pitch him to do the wrong thing, David was a man of honor. And in that honor, he allows God to be God. And all David does is benefit. His character is saved. His testimony is saved. His kingdom is saved. His heart is saved and tender. As you see that passage, right? The honorable in life, they model honor first and then they demand it from those that hang around them. There's a tremendous difference here between ministry of people in the world and expecting certain things out of them and ministry with the fellowship that you and I are close to and expecting certain things out of them. Those that I let into my inner circle, I should model honor and then I should demand it from them. It keeps my circle close, safe, and God-honoring. You can't expect this stuff from the world. When you walk into your job, you can request certain things, and sometimes the unsaved will bend how they act according to your testimony. I've seen it done for myself and other people. They will interact with you differently because you claim to be a Christian and you want to honor and serve God, and so their language will change or whatever else. But you and I don't get to walk into those situations and demand it. That's not how ministry works. But you do get to demand it from the people in your church. You do get to demand it from the people in your home. You do get to demand it from the people on that text thread that are your closest individuals, the ones that are praying for you, loving you, and taking care of you. You do get to demand it from them. You model it then. You demand it. And finally, last week we talked about the idea of when we deal with the difficult, if you and I do it properly, these coals are heaped out. One of those may be shame. We saw that in the passage. The, the king Saul was ashamed of how he acted. He looked at David and said, you're more honorable than I am. One piece is God's judgment. It says leave room for God's judgment, right? When we don't respond evil for evil, we leave room for the judgment of God. Some of you all have been so uh, hurt by someone in your life that never repented. And all I can do is say to you simply this, God will sort that out. You don't have to take it upon yourself to punish wickedness. God will do it for you, and he will do it far worse than you've ever dreamed. And sometimes one of the most amazing pieces is the coals that God heaps out is the coal of purification or the coal of repentance. One of the most amazing things that would happen in mine and your life is if that evil done to you, when it hit the Holy Spirit within you and that Christ-like demeanor, when it hit that person, God eventually used that in the evil person's life to change them and make them like Christ. You see, God is going to fix that wickedness. He is going to punish that wickedness. And either it will be paid for on the cross of Christ, like my wickedness was paid for, where the only innocent man in history dies, a bloody, horrible, gruesome death, or it will be paid for at the judgment. And it will be paid for in hell, separated from God. 
So see, you and I, if our theology is right about who God is and the long-range view that we're taking of not only this life but the next one, if our theology is right, it allows these coals to be dropped. Sometimes it's shame, sometimes it's God's judgment, but man, sometimes in amazing fashion, the Lord uses your reaction to evil done to you in order to save someone else. And I think of the Roman centurion that probably just pounded the nails into Jesus' wrists and feet. The sky goes dark and the earth quakes and the chaos just ensues. And he looks up and says, surely this was the Son of God. Now what happens if you and I, one day in heaven, a burly dude comes walking up to us, shakes our hand and embraces us, And you and I find out a couple minutes later that he was one of the ones pounding those spikes into the body of Jesus Christ. Would that not be amazing? I believe that is on the table as to how God deals with the wickedness of this world. Jesus pays for it or that person will pay for it. You do not have to fight for vengeance. Even when you've been done wrong, I I would just beg you Temper your language when you're yelling for justice. Temper it. Temper it with the idea of grace. Right? If it's personal. Now, corporate things are different. Corporate things have to be dealt with. But when it's individual, especially if it's a miscommunication or somebody hurts your feelings, be careful when you start thinking in terms of justice. You'll rob your whole life. You'll become bitter and angry, and the the devil will not only get a toehold in your life, he will get a chokehold. He will kill you through that kind of bitterness. And so we talked about dealing with the difficult. Our worldview matters. We're going to outdo them in honor. We're going to remember our divine leverage in prayer. The the judge of the world loves me and he's paying attention. We're We're going to go through temporarily horrible things, but we're going to be eternally blessed where every tear is wiped away. And then sometimes, I told you last week, finishing with just this idea, you just go your separate ways sometimes. You don't have to give access to evil people to beat you constantly. Some of your best work is when you're praying for them in your prayer closet. And so when you go into these situations and someone looks at you like you are, uh, you're just, you're just a pinata. Just be careful. Just be careful. Ministry and fellowship. Don't ever mix those two up. So look at 1 Samuel 25 for me. A different culture. A different culture. We're going to read this morning, starting in verse, uh, the end of verse 1. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in uh, Maon whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep at Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. A real quick point. If you write in your Bible, scribble over to the side, Ambassador. This is very important when it comes to New Testament Christianity. Do you understand that God has sent you and I on this same kind of mission? Because what happens next is an insult not to the men that brought the message. What happens next is an insult to David. And that leads down a very dangerous road for Nabal the fool. 
But this is the kind of context that you and I live in right now. This is the kind of context that the mission you are on as an ambassador for Christ, you have been sent in Jesus' name. If David's messengers give the wrong message, they will be held accountable. But if David's messengers are mistreated for the right message, the one that does the mistreating will have to deal with the one that sent them. It's the power of being an ambassador. It's why when you get into the book of Acts and, and Jesus Christ knocks Saul of Tarsus off his horse, Jesus doesn't say, why are you persecuting these wonderful people in the church? Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? Now, as we sung these songs before and we talk about these promises, if we've got a God that operates like those that hurt you and I are hurting him, that is a powerful position to be in with one that loves you and has sent you on mission. Does that make sense? As the rest of this passage unfolds, it unfolds in the context of David never spoke to Nabal, but he sent men to speak on his behalf. Verse 6. And thus you shall greet him. This is what David is saying to his men. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm. They missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please, please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. You see, this is a different culture. And this is really, I mean, David at this point has about 600 people gathered around him, at least men, so there's more there. And he goes into this man that is a wealthy individual around the time of a feast. And he comes in and he says, man, we've taken care of your flock for a long time. You've missed nothing. The marauders haven't taken anything. We have been kind to those that serve you. Give us something that we can feast with. This is a really large ask, but this is a different culture. You see, the shepherds have worked in peace, and the flock has been blessed by David's men and their protection of the flock. Nabal's life has actually gotten better because David's men were camped close. And so David asked that he and his men celebrate too. And here's what I want you to understand. Here's the difference in the culture then and the culture now. The honor culture would dictate a gift. But a hospitable culture would desire to give an extravagant one. See, you and I don't understand this because we're, we're, we're unfamiliar with a lot of the Old Testament uh, cultural differences between them and us. But if you remember the story of Abraham, what happens when Abraham sees the strangers coming? I believe it's Genesis 17. Abraham gets up. He doesn't wait for them to get to his tent. The Bible says that he runs to meet them. And then he offers this extravagant gift. And I've heard it, I've heard it quoted that what, what he asked for is like 60 to 80 pounds of bread. So many sayas of flour and it's like 60 to 80. Like this is an extravagant moment for three people. Come, stay with us. And if you read the passage, what happens just before that passage when Abraham gets up and runs is he and his family have just been circumcised. There wasn't no hydrocodone then to... Knock the edge off. But this man in this honor culture where, where we've talked before about the idea that the patriarch running is an insult, this man gets up and he runs to meet. That is the idea of even the Middle Eastern world right now. Both Jew 
and Muslim see this peace, this honor culture, this hospitable culture as something that they desire to be like even to this day. And why? Part of the reason is because Abraham ended up entertaining angels and God without even knowing it. So you can see the context of this culture when David comes in and he makes this ask. Yes, it's huge, but in that culture, this is normal. It's a normal thing. Like, we have benefited you. We have helped you. You're celebrating. We would like to celebrate too. Show us some mercy. Show us some grace. And so we see in verse 9, when David's young men came and they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, again, ambassador, and Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? This guy is a case study in foolishness. What we're going to read in the next couple verses is a case study in how to be a fool. How to look like one, how to sound like one, how to finish like one. And by the time we finish with the story, I hope you're terrified of that idea. Because you and I could be here any minute. One bad decision, one compromise, and all of a sudden you and I are playing the fool too. And Nabal answered, verse 10, David's servant. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Just insult, insult, insult. Nastiness. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from I don't know where? So David's young men turned around and they came back and they told him this. Nabal is a fool. And we're going to see that even his name is foolish. Like what a prophetic moment. Like whose parents name you fool? Right? This had to be divine intervention. The Lord's like, I'm going to use this guy's story. He's going to be a fool his whole life. We're just going to go ahead and name him that. I mean, who does that? Nabal is a fool. Number one, he is passive. And you say, what do you mean by that? There's not even a verse about that. It's hard to be an honoring and hospitable master if you have to be asked. If you have to be asked for it, it's very hard to be honorable and hospitable. He's passive. He's passive. I hate that word. It makes me want to throw up in my mouth every time I say it because I fear it for my own life and I fear it especially for men in our church and in the church in general. He's passive. And so instead of uh, being honoring and being overt in his actions, he sits back and he just waits for it to come to him. Especially the men here. I'm begging you. Get out of that routine. Get up in the morning with a plan and a mission. Honor your spouse or the person that you're close to. Honor your children. Love them well. Get up on mission. Honor your friends and your church. Be on mission for the things that have to get done. Do not be passive. The days are evil. Scripture says redeem the days because they're evil. And the idea is get up with a plan. How many times have I rolled out of bed and just not had a plan and nothing gets accomplished? It's not proper. We're not getting those hours and those days back. In verse 9, what do we see? There's hesitating. He is hesitating. When he's confronted with something that's righteous and real and good, he's hesitating. 
There was a pause when there should have been none. When David's men come forward and they made that spiel, an honorable man, a hospitable man says, yes, let's go. Look at even the, the prodigal's father in that one, right? It's not just, it's not just anything that they're going to give the son. That kind of love and care and hospitality says, bring the fatted calf, bring the good one. And so in this one, he hesitates and he should not. How about verse 10? He's disrespectful. Who is David? There sure are a lot of servants running from their masters these days and breaking away. He's just disrespectful. The fool is disrespectful. If sarcasm is our only tone, we're in trouble. We're Nabal. Do not speak like that. If you find it on repeat, run from it. It's rotting your soul. It is a, is a sign of soul cancer. You read on Facebook and all the memes and stuff and however many people float them around, but you know, sarcasm is a sign of intelligence and all kinds of other stuff. No, it's a sign of soul cancer. If you cannot have an honest conversation with someone, if you cannot be real and legit, if you find yourself constantly making snarky remarks and being nasty, you're disrespectful. You dishonor the image of God. And so do I when I do it. He's greedy. Shall I take my bread, my water, my meat that I've killed for my shearers? He's greedy. He's selfish. And he exaggerates. He didn't kill anything. He wasn't working at all. We find actually in, in the next part of this chapter, he's at a party. The fool exaggerates. The fool is greedy. The fool is disrespectful. The fool hesitates when there should be movement. And the fool is passive. I mean, if you honestly take in an idea of just these, you may waste money and regain it. A car, a home, destruction can happen, chaos can happen, all that stuff comes up. But when you and I waste time, we never get it back. The fool was passive. And so we see that in Nabal as we read through his story. And I love the idea of this one in verses 17 and 25. You know what else the fool is? It's widely known. You may be the only person that don't know you're a fool if you're a fool. Because everybody else is tired of dealing with your baloney. They're tired of dealing with your snarkiness and your disrespect and your greed. Tired of dealing with the idea that to do the right thing is a hesitation. They're tired of dealing with you in general. So when you find yourself on an island, check yourself out first. Am I condescending and nasty all the time? Am I a drain of energy and passion? The thing about being a fool is you might be the only person that don't know it. In this passage, everybody knows that Nabal is a fool. And so as we read forward, we see now where we at, verse 13. The foolish, the fool, and now the foolish. Look at verse 13 with me. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up with David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Look at verse 21. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed 
of all that belong to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God, do so to the enemies of David, and more so if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. This reaction is about ready to get bloody. David is a warrior. And he is surrounded by warriors. And they've been insulted in a culture that starts wars over that even to this day. And so what happens when the foolish? What happens when we're getting ready to make a foolish decision? Number one, he doesn't know his audience. David didn't know his audience. When he sent his men to Nabal, he wasn't aware that the reaction may not be good. I can't tell you how many times that I've counseled with people in the last 10 years and even before that with this simple idea. Sometimes our expectations have to match who we're working with. And a lot of times we come in with very high expectations. And when they're not met, we are surprised and that surprise makes us angry. And what is that? It's a sign that we're not, we're not uh, comprehending things with an open and honest assessment. We walk into a situation and we are surprised with the idea that someone didn't react like I thought they should. I hope when I say it out loud to you, it sounds silly that we ever operate that way. Especially when we're dealing with someone in the world. Now, your Christian brothers and sisters may catch you by surprise when you're trying to deal with something properly and it doesn't happen. But if you're dealing with the world and you walk into work or you call somebody in, in customer service somewhere, man, what a week that's been with those phone calls. But when you do that, like our expectations are this is going to run flawlessly. They're going to be very happy that I've come to them and asked them for something. Come on, you all. And then all of a sudden we're like, man, that, that person's stressed out, angry. They don't know what they're doing either. Now I'm irritated that I walked in with the wrong assessments. David sets up for a foolish decision, number one, by not knowing his audience. Nabal's name or nickname could have given David a really good heads up as to who he was getting ready to deal with. This man's character could have given David a heads up as to who he was getting ready to walk in and ask for an extravagant gift from, but it didn't. So when his men come back with nothing... David says, mount up, put your sword on. Verse 13, what happens? He gets insulted and he gets angry. How about this one, verse 13? Boy, this one is, this one's hard to deal with. He brings others into his rage. How often, when we're getting ready to make a foolish decision, do we try to reel in other people to take them with us? Now, David has the clout to do it. Because he's the man in charge. But even if we are people with no clout, you and I have a tendency to try to bring people into our rage with us. And it brings me back to the idea of counseling. You know, one of the most troubling things I've ever seen in ministry is simply this. If you're having marital issues and you bring your parents into the situation with you, you've done everybody a disservice. And so when I counsel those that are getting ready to get married, I look at them and say, your parents cannot be your go-to vent. Because if you make them that, when you forgive your spouse that your head's over heels about right now, when you forgive them, old mom and dad ain't going to. And now the next Christmas dinner and Thanksgiving and Sunday is always going to be weird. And why is that? Because you didn't pick a friend to vent to. You went to your parents. You and I have this tendency to want to bring other people into the rage with us. 
It's the reason why if you have a good experience somewhere, you tell hardly anybody. But if you have a poor experience somewhere, I think the stats were like seven to ten people are going to find out about how poor your experience was. In the realm of church shopping, that one hurts. Somebody walks in and they don't feel like the response is what they should have gotten. They're going to walk out and tell seven different people how horrible we are as a church. But if they come here and they like it, then they're going to tell one or two. We just want to bring people into our rage with us. I love this one because I struggle with this one too. When you're getting ready to make a foolish decision, you know what you do about your decisions prior to that? You go over them again and again and again and again. David comes into the city riding in, sword on, 400 men behind him. He is getting ready to create a bloodbath. And what is he thinking about? I should have never guarded this guy's stuff. I should have never done that. I've done it all for nothing. And I did him good, and he repaid me for evil. Does that not sound like something you and I do right before we make a bad decision? We replay what we've just done over and over. We, 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 it, it's just almost like an OCD. I shouldn't have done, they got me. They got, you know, it's just the enemy whispering to you and I. The whole moment is robbed of the joy and the blessing of life in general so that you can think about the poorest of decisions that either you made or someone forced upon you. And it is exactly what David is doing in this moment. So he is riding in and he's replaying over in his head. Why? Because in order to keep that emotional anger for that bad decision, the enemy has to keep you thinking about what just happened to you. And the other side of the coin is that when we make a hasty decision, we think very little about what tomorrow is going to bring. All we think about is right now. I am going to repay evil for evil, and it is going to feel fantastic until I wake up the morning after and I have shed innocent blood. Until I wake up the morning after, I heard a Jewish proverb one time, and it says, which one is easier to overcome, gossip or stealing? Which one is easier to overcome? To steal from somebody or to gossip about them? And it was a windy day and this rabbi took a piece of paper and he ripped it up into a couple hundred pieces and he looked at the person and he said, gossip is like this and he threw it and the wind blew it everywhere. And he looked at the person and said, now go pick it up. I am going to repay evil for evil. I'm going to destroy this person's character. I'm going to hurt them. I'm going to lash out. And I don't care what Tuesday brings or Monday brings, but Sunday afternoon is going to feel fantastic. When you and I get ready to make a foolish decision, we are overplaying what has happened that is bad, and we are underplaying what we are getting ready to do that is also horrible. And that's what David is doing right now. We dwell on the past incessantly but give no thought no thought to what happens tomorrow. And David is building up into this foolish decision. But what do we see in verse 14? The story's not over, thank God. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed against them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as they went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and day. All the while we were with, uh, with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. 
Look at verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisin and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I will come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Verse 20. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Look at verse 23. When David, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell uh, before David on her face, and she bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. What an amazing comment. What an amazing comment. On me alone, be the guilt. She had nothing to do with what happened coming into this moment. She's going to take it on the chin, though. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so he is a fool. Pretty sure that's how my wife has spoken to a couple of you all when I've done some dumb stuff before. Just hold tight. We'll get through it. He's got his moments, right? Face down to the ground, right? Look at verse 25. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, he is in his name. The folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young man of my Lord, whom you sent. Verse 26. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let the present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Verse 28, please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies shall be uh, sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all good, and that he has spoken concerning and appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt, uh, dealt with well with my Lord, then remember your servant. What an amazing story. This lady intervenes. Abigail, this peacemaker, shows up. She's not a peacekeeper. Do not confuse the two. Peacekeepers put up with evil. Peacemakers confront it and then figure out how to fix it. It's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. And especially in our culture right now, you and I need to be very, very aware of the difference between being a peacekeeper and being a peacemaker. There is evil here. Someone is going to pay. Abigail walks in and she says, pour it out on me. What do we see about the peacemaker? Some of the things, and I'm going to make these notes. There's a lot of notes here. I'm going to make them available uh, on our page. And I will get you a copy of them if you want. But there's a lot to go through. Look at verse 14. She's approachable. The young man comes to her. The young man doesn't go to Nabal because he knows he's going to deal with a fool. The young man comes to her and says, we're in big trouble. You would not believe what just happened. David's men come. They were good to us. Nabal has prospered under their guarding. And now David's been insulted. And we are all in trouble. 
Verses 14 to 17, what do we see? You and I, as peacemakers, we need to hear the whole story, all of it. You need to hear all of the story. She does. Even to the point when the servant looks at her and says, your husband is a jerk. Your husband is a fool. And so we get, when we get into that point, we've got to hear the whole story. Because you can't come up with a plan if you don't know everything that's happened. And so Abigail does that. What do we see in verse 17? The guy says, we are all in trouble. When they come back, they're not just coming for Nabal. All of us are in trouble. You and I, as a peacemaker, you need to see the collateral damage. That's what most people don't see whenever they're looking at problems. Looking at solving them, fixing them, trying to step into them, looking at the broad picture. Nobody does that. They will not take one minute to look five minutes down the road or to look one person past who they are actually talking to. You have to see collateral damage. So do I. Verse 17, what do we see? You see the faults of others. And then instead of pointing them out, you overcome them. As a peacemaker, you see the faults of others. And instead of pointing them out, banging the symbol for everybody else to see them. Like she could have had people grab Nabal and run him out in front of the camp and hand him to David and say, there's the one you want. Leave the rest of us alone, please. That's not what she does. She makes a plan. I like verse 18. It says, she moved with haste. Move. Do something. There's an issue brewing. Be aggressive, not passive. Take care of it. Do what you can to fix it. Instead of sitting around and waiting for it to blow up. Verse 18, leverage your stature and your resources for the moment. You know who you are. You know what you have access to. You know who you have access to. Leverage those in the moment to be a part of what's positive. Look at the peacemaker. Verse 19 says this, realize some may try to sabotage the plan. In verse 19, she does not tell her husband why. Because he's going to sabotage the plan. Realize who you're dealing with. Right? And another piece of the collateral damage is simply this. Realize that your loved ones are going to suffer if you don't act. It's one thing to see this family's hurt. It's one thing to see our culture in a mess. It's another thing to think, wait a second, my kids are going to be brought into this. My family is going to be brought into this. If Abigail has children, her children are going to die because of this. And in all of that, she gets aggressive. She gets proactive. How about verses 23 to 25 when she meets David? Be humble and own more than your share of the problem. When you're dealing with people and you've got an issue, I promise you, I promise you, if you walk in soft, you will have a much better response than if you walk in bristles. There's a bristling that comes and a breaking that comes. Our whole goal at all times is always the breaking. The bristling does nothing. If I'm bristled and they're bristled, now we've not accomplished anything. If I'm humble and I'm owning more than my uh, share of the problem, then you will probably come out with a better outcome and at least diffuse a lot of that situation up front. Instead of walking in, like I said, you, you've been insulted, uh, you've been caught off guard, and now you come into that moment hot. It's not going to end well. Because all that's left is physical violence because you've taken negotiation off the table. You've taken a broken heart off the table and you've come in ready to fight. 
And so when you go in, be humble. Own more than your share. Set the stage to watch God work. Verse 26, what she do? She appeals to a morality higher than her own. The most dangerous things about our culture that we live in right now is that about every third sentence is, I feel, I feel, I feel. It's dangerous, deadly. It's not godly, and it's not helpful. We all feel certain ways. We need to get to what's true and work through it. You have to appeal to a morality that's higher than yourself in order to get to a place where there can be compromise and work and negotiation and moving forward. That's what she does. Why? Because she looks at David and says, Far be it from you to have blood guilt on you. When the Lord sets your kingdom up, you won't have anything in your conscience to be upset about because God is going to stop you from doing a wicked thing. And what happens? Last couple verses, 32 says this, And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you. You have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working uh, salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. A flash of foolishness gets pushed aside by a godly person intervening. 32 to 35, how do you and I keep a foolish decision from making us a fool? How do we take one foolish decision and make sure it doesn't make us a Nabal? Number one, you accept the peacemaker as a representative from God and as a blessing to you. This person has arrived in God's behalf, and if they come to you with God's morality and God's word, you listen to what they have to say. If you don't, if you don't, you will be in a mess. Moments Minutes or days later, if God sends you a peacemaker, they are an ambassador from him to you. They are a gift from God. Listen to what they have to say. And if they take you to scripture and they, they walk you through passages and principles, listen. What do you do next? Well, you honor the Lord and his servant, even if godly correction was why they were sent. Even if the message is godly correction, honor the Lord and thank him. Honor the servant of God for being brave enough to intervene. Bless those that point you to God's sovereignty and God's justice. Don't curse them when they look at you and say, don't take it out on your own. Don't do it yourself. The Lord will take care of this. If you get your hands dirty, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do was to tell somebody that had failed catastrophically. That they had to repent first for what they had done in order to get healing for what was done to them. Because what did they do? They responded evil for evil and then the devil trapped them in this idea that they were merited in their evil. That's a hellish prison to be in. It'll kill you. So you have to look at that person and say, I know what was done to you before was wrong, but you have to repent first because now you've responded in evil. You didn't rely on God's justice and God's sovereignty. You decided to take it out on your own. Bless those that point you to God's sovereignty and his justice. Accept the terms 
the gift or the blessing. Accept the apology. Work through it. Don't be bitter or sulk. Don't pout. And we all know that word. We've got a lot of kids here. Everybody knows what that one is. Don't pout. Work through what has just happened. And do so in a way that releases you for what's next in life. If you're bitter or you're sulking, you will miss the blessings. Your time will be eaten up in a way that it should never be eaten. Your God is still good. He loves you. It doesn't matter what evil was done to you. I promise you a million years from now, you won't even remember it. Live with that kind of theology. Would you stand with me this morning as they come to play? You know, the idea this morning is there, this is a wonderful passage. There are three amazing people within it. One is an amazing picture of who not to be. One is an amazing picture of what happens when a man or woman of God are insulted or hurt or angry. And there's two roads that are getting ready to go down, one of which is going to haunt them the rest of their life and one of which is going to be a blessing later on down the road. They are two roads that they can walk down. And the third one is this. God provides a person with the story, with the authority to look at them and say, don't. Friends, when I tell you you need a church family, that's one of the reasons why you need a church family. Because there are going to be moments in your life when you want to deviate to the left or to the right. And when you do that, there will be something that comes about that you can't recover from. Or if you do, you will walk with a limp the rest of your life. God can overcome our sinful decisions. But some of us have made decisions that if five minutes before we could change our own mind, you would do it in a heartbeat. If we live in good community, the peacemaker walks in. The person that's close to us walks in. And we listen to what they have to say. And God can change that road. He can use any road. Romans 8.28 still applies. But some of them are a lot easier to get down when you're not limping. Some of them are a lot easier to get down if you've not made a horrible decision. And you've caused someone else to limp now too. This is an amazing story. Abigail should be lifted up as someone that saved the lives of many people and saved the conscience of King David for the rest of his life as well. We need to operate and we need to see these things in the scripture and we need to heed their warning or do our best to live like them. Amen. You need something this morning, you want to come and pray. The altar is open.